class for the evening. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you again for permitting us to come together and share this time uh, to explore the meaning of the saints and how they influenced the church, how they served the church, and how they should influence us. So we ask your blessing on the, our efforts this evening and help us to open our mind and heart, our spiritual ears, to hear what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Okay, tonight we're going to have what I think is an interesting um, discussion, and I hope you will think so too, particularly at the end of it, that it was interesting and informative. We're going to talk about the three women of the church, the three women doctors of the church. And as we've said before, uh, when we're talking about doctors of the church, this is an honorary title, in a way, or an honorary delegation uh, of, and significance is only in the fact of honoring them for their contribution uh, to the church and to mankind in general. Each of these three women uh, contributed significantly. But the point is, we should not so much focus on what they contributed or the uh, unusual circumstances in their life, but how they obeyed teachings of the church and how they obeyed really the command of God to fulfill their role in God's plan of salvation. Each of us is called, as I've said before, each of us is called to fulfill a small role, a small part in God's continuing plan of salvation, which began right in the beginning of time and will continue right till the end of time. Yeah, that sounds like a movie title. Okay. Uh, and the point really is, not so much what he or she did, but how he or she fulfilled their role. Not something that they particularly wanted to do, but their role as God laid it out for them. And the objective of all of this is for us to find our particular role in God's plan of salvation so that we might fulfill it as he would want us to fill it. So many people think that uh, by doing great things for the church, uh, they're going to... Uh, you know, have a glorious throne up in heaven. And that's not always the case because, as God said, or Jesus said in one of the Gospels, uh, just because you say, Lord, Lord, that doesn't mean that you're going to get to heaven. Okay? In other words, just because you do great things for the church or other uh, areas of humanity, that might not be what he wants of you. And you might be doing it because it's fulfilling your own needs or wants or desires 
not necessarily in fulfilling what he wants of you. You might be ignoring him altogether, and therefore you have earned your reward in the pleasures that you found in whatever you were doing. So the point I'm trying to make here is keep your eye not so much on the great and glorious things that uh, these three women did, and two of them did outstanding things for the church. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that too, because as we have heard for those of you who have studied the Old Testament, God worked directly with many of the great persons of the Old Testament, uh, beginning with Abraham and uh, Moses, Moses particularly, Moses being the most influential human being of the Old Testament, uh, with David, with all of the prophets, uh, with Elijah, and so many others. God worked directly with them, and through them, did a lot of marvelous things. You just think of the ten plagues uh, that were worked at the time of Moses, by God, through Moses, all right? Um, interesting phenomena, you might say. But we don't hear a lot of that kind of thing coming out of modern times, all right? Uh, we don't hear a lot of unusual phenomena uh, coming from people in and through the church today. And yet, there has been a lot of that. Next week, we'll go into the phenomena of the stigmata. But in addition to that, uh, did you know that there was a phenomena called bilocation, where certain members of the church, at the will of God, put themselves into two different places at the same time? Uh, there is another one that I will talk about where letters were exchanged between uh, a saint or a person that was later designated as a saint and her confessor through the use of the tabernacle because she was a cloistered nun and he being a man could not enter the cloister and so they exchanged letters which by which he directed her, and they were mailed by placing them inside of the tabernacle. And he would get his, or she would get his, in the chapel of her convent, and he would get hers in the chapel of his monastery. Right? So we do have a number of things like that that I will go into next week. So, the point that I'm making here is that God has used certain people for extraordinary purposes, all right? But we should not dwell so much on that as we should on just what is he asking of us as individuals today. And that is where I want to start. Because, as I've said 
many times, and will continue to say many times, that we all have a certain part to play in this overall plan of salvation. And the reason being is, <clears throat> for those of you who have been in business, when a group of people come together to design a, a program of some kind, uh, or design instructions, or work out uh, a plan, it is more acceptable if each has a part in contributing to the structure of that plan, or instruction, or design, or whatever it might be. If one person designates the whole thing and says to the rest of the group, take it or leave it, and it falls apart if, you know, they don't take it as this one person dictates, it's not as acceptable. It's only really acceptable when each contributes something and has sort of an ownership attitude toward it. And that is what we're really trying to convey. God has done the same kind of thing in his overall plan of salvation by leaving the door open for each of us to play a small part. All right? And as I've said before, using the analogy of a uh, mosaic, you all know what a mosaic is, a beautiful picture made up of tiny stones. But some of those stones are, are very plain, ordinary, but others are brilliant and very uh, distinctive and are used for the more important parts of the picture. But it takes all of those stones together to make the picture. And it takes all of us together willingly fulfilling our role in God's plan of salvation to complete that plan. And the end of time will not come, at least for us, until our role is completed. All right? Or we are given a certain amount of time to complete it, and hopefully we do. We'll talk more about that as we go on. All right? The first of these three ladies is Catherine of Siena. She led a very interesting life right from the very beginning. And in 33 years, she did about three times as much as any other one person uh, could even hope to accomplish. And there was so much that I was going to condense it and just kind of give it to you uh, verbally and narrative, you know, making you think that I, I really knew this lady very well. Well, uh, unfortunately, there's so much in her life that I'm going to have to read most of this because it's interesting, but it's far too much detail for any one person to remember and to uh, give it to you uh, off the cuff, so to speak. She was the youngest of a very large family. One of the biographies that I read of her said that she came from a family of 25 children. Now, uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't mention that, Norm, whether it was the same mother or not. We don't know. But uh, I pity the poor mother. Okay? 
All right. They were a sort of lower middle class uh, people. And, of course, this is the middle of the uh, 14th century. Um, from her earliest childhood, Catherine began to see visions and to practice extreme austerities. At the age of seven, she consecrated her virginity to Christ. <clears throat> In her 16th year, she took the habit of, a do, of a, the Dominican tertiary. That's the third order of Dominicans. I thought, uh, up until start researching this, that she was a Carmelite. No, she was Dominican. But only third order. Now, third order, uh, we don't hear too much about that, although this third order of St. Francis is still fairly popular. Uh, you know, it is a group of lay people who kind of pledge themselves to foster the uh, ideas, the concepts, of their particular order. The Dominicans have always been noted as serving the poor and the sick. Right? They have established many, many hospitals as well as schools. Right? But the main focus of their work has been uh, towards caring for the sick. Okay. It says, in the 16th year, she took the habit of the Dominican tertiaries and renewed the life of the anchorites of the desert in a little room in her father's house. In other words, she sort of imposed on herself the role of a monk. All right? This was not something official. It was something that she took voluntarily. After three years of celestial visitations and family familiar conversations with Christ, she underwent the mystical experience known as the spiritual espousal. And that means that she has pledged herself as the spouse of Jesus Christ. No physical relationship, of course, but nevertheless, it's a spiritual union. Probably, and this was probably during the year 1366. She now, upon completing that, rejoined her family, began to tend the sick, especially those afflicted with the most repulsive diseases, to serve the poor and to labor for the conversion of sinners. Though always suffering terrible physical pain, living for long intervals on practically no food save the blessed sacrament, she was ever radiantly happy and full of practical Wisdom, no less than the highest spiritual insight. All of her contemporaries bear witness to her extraordinary personal charm, which prevailed over the continual persecution to which she was subjected even by the friars of her order and some of her own sisters in religion. Seems to me that the holier a person becomes within a group, whether it be the monastery or the convent, those surrounding her, those people surrounding her, seem to bring out the worst in them. Jealousy sets in. There's a little story that I was told, and if you all remember the <laughs> rather long DVD we saw the other night on Solanus Casey. Um, 
there's a little story told about when he was at a meal, whether it be breakfast, lunch, or dinner, I don't remember. That's not important. But he was sitting on the end of a long table like this, and somebody asked him to pass one of the dishes, and he accidentally knocked it off. And so they said, well, Father, why don't you say a prayer and have the, of course, the dish broke, you know, on the floor. And they said, why don't you have a, uh, say a prayer and uh, this dish will just all come together again, you know. In other words, they were sort of egging him on, uh, out of spite and a little bit of jealousy. The thing is, he reached down, picked it up, and it was all put back together. So, and then he went right on. So he didn't say anything. He didn't have to. But you do have that in, it seems like, all convents. For some reason or other, the devil seems to work harder where people are holier. She began to gather disciples around her, both men and women, who formed a wonderful spiritual fellowship, united to her by the bonds of mystical love. During the summer of the year 1370, she received a series of special manifestations of divine mysteries, which culminated in a prolonged trance, a kind of mystical death, in which she had a vision of hell, purgatory, and heaven and heard a divine command to leave her condition, leave her cell, I'm sorry, and enter the public life of the world. In other words, get out of your uh, enclosed or cloistered community and get out and work in the world. And boy, did she work, okay? She began to dispatch letters to men and women in every condition of life, she entered into correspondence with the princes and republics of Italy. Remember, Italy at this time had a lot of little municipal—not uh, municipalities, but uh, little kingdoms, you might say—all over the place. It was not a united country as it is today. She was consulted by the papal legates about the affairs of the church and set herself to heal the wounds of her native land by staying the fury of civil war and the ravages of faction. She implored the Pope Gregory the Ninth, no, I'm sorry, Gregory the Eleventh, to leave Avignon. This was the time during which the Popes had a struggle within themselves. And at one time there was three Popes, one in Rome, one in, or two in, Milan, in Avignon, France, uh, vying sort of uh, or jockeying for position. Um, it was called the Avignon Schism, uh, and it ran from the year 13, mm, around 1309 to 1378, I believe it was, a little less than seven, 70 years, okay? <clears throat> she implored the Pope Gregory XI to leave Avignon to form the reform the clergy and the administration of the papal states. <clears throat> papal states. I'm going to come back to that. And ardently threw herself into his design for a crusade 
in the hopes of uniting the powers of Christendom against the infidels and restoring peace to Italy by delivering her from, delivering Italy, that is, from the wandering companies of mercenaries, soldiers, mercenary soldiers. While at Pisa, on the fourth Sunday of Lent, 1375, she received the stigmata. We're going to talk more about stigmata next week. Although at her special prayer and request, the marks did not appear outwardly in her body while she lived. I want to go back to this papal states. <clears throat> From the middle of the 8th century, almost up through and including the 18th century, or going almost into the 19th century, the popes of Rome were actually temporary or temporal rulers of actual lands in the same way that kings and queens and princes were uh, in other countries. They had certain territories, they had armies, uh, they issued uh, all kinds of uh, directives, etc. They were acting in many ways just like uh, nobles. Right? And part of that was required because during the what we call the Dark Ages, uh, that was really from about the 5th century up to around the 15th century, there was no other national rulers throughout Europe. Europe was in total disarray, and every little strong armed person uh, would claim his territory as sovereign. All right. So the church was the only recognized sovereign authority for nearly a thousand years. And because of that, it almost had to develop uh, armies and employ uh, civilians in many different ways in order to protect itself. All right. During that time, it was the only organization that established hospitals, orphanages, uh, schools, colleges, universities, libraries, etc. All right. Almost all of those things were ignored by the wealthy and the little people so to speak uh, were put down as much as possible so the church was the only ruling authority that was recognized by virtually everybody and that is why the papal states reigned for uh, nearly a thousand years actually over a little over a thousand years All right. so I don't want you to be misled by that the whole history of the Papal States is very, very interesting. And it wasn't until uh, the early part of the 19th century that that was finally resolved uh, by uh, Giacomo uh, Garibaldi. Anybody, uh, any of you who have been in Rome, you'll see that one right in the middle of the city of Rome is a huge, huge white uh, building building uh, a monument and a, a museum and sort of a memorial 
to Garibaldi, and it signifies his unifying the country of Italy and settling with the Pope to give up the Papal States in exchange for Vatican City, which would be sovereign and totally independent of any other country and protected by Italy. That's how Vatican City came to be. But that wasn't until uh, somewhere around 1840. I forget the exact date. All right. But that's fairly recent. Okay. Now, getting back to Catherine of Siena. Mainly through the misgovernment of the papal officials, war broke out between Florence and the Holy See. Right? In other words, that's why the Pope had to have armies of his own. And almost the whole of the papal states rose in insurrection. Catherine had already been sent on a mission from the Pope to secure the neutrality of the area of Pisa and Lucca. In June 1376, she went to Avignon as ambassador of the Florentines. That was one of the major households of the nobles to make their peace, but either through the bad faith of the Republic or through a misunderstanding caused by the frequent changes in its government, she was unsuccessful. Nevertheless, she made such a profound impression upon the mind of the Pope that in spite of the opposition of the French king and almost the whole of the Sacred College, he returned to Rome in January of 1377. Catherine spent the greater part of 1377 in effecting a wonderful spiritual revival in the country districts subject to the Republic of Siena. And it was at this time that she miraculously learned to write. Now here, of course, she only lived a total of 33 years. This is just a year or so before she died. Uh, she could not write, read or write. Okay. And all of a sudden, she is given the power uh, to write one of the yes. All of her letters and her writings were dictated. Okay. In early 1378, she was sent by Pope Gregory to Florence to make a fresh effort for peace. Unfortunately, through the factious conduct of her Florentine associates. She became involved in the internal politics of the city and during a popular tumult, popular, that's what it says here, an attempt was made upon her life. She was bitterly disappointed at her escape, declaring that her sins had deprived her of the red rose of martyrdom. Nevertheless, during the disastrous revolution known as the tumult of Ciampi, she still remained at Florence or in its territory until, at the beginning of August, news reached the city that peace had been signed between the Republic and the new Pope. Catherine then instantly returned to Siena, where she passed a few months of comparative quiet, dictating her dialogue, the book of her meditations and revelations. In the meanwhile, the great schism had broken out in the church, from the onset, Catherine enthusiastically adhered to the Roman claimant Urban VI, who in November 1378 summoned her to Rome. 
in the eternal city, she spent what remained of her life working strenuously for the reformation of the church, serving the destitute and afflicted, and dispatching eloquent letters uh, on behalf of Urban VI uh, to high and low in all directions. Her strength was rapidly being consumed. She received the sacrifice of her body for the unity. That doesn't make sense. She. I'm sorry. Her strength was rapidly being consumed. She besought her divine bridegroom to let her bear the punishment of all the sins of the world and to receive the sacrifice of her body for the unity and renovation of the church. At last it seemed to her that the chair of Peter um, was laid upon her shoulders and that it was crushing her to death with its weight. That is, the chair of Peter is the authority of Peter, in other words, the authority of the Pope itself. After a prolonged and mysterious agony of three months, endured by her with supreme exultation and delight, from Sexagesima Sunday, the sixth Sunday of Lent, until the Sunday before the Ascension, she died. Her last political work, accomplished practically from her deathbed, was the reconciliation of Pope Urban VI with the Roman Republic. That was 1380. Among Catherine's principal followers uh, were Fra Renando della Vigna of Capua, her confessor and biographer. Afterwards, the, he was the general of the Dominicans, and so forth and so on. Here, um, uh, Raimondo's book, The Legend, was finished. The Legend is the biography of, of Catherine. Uh, was finished in 1395. A second life of her, the supplement, was written a few years later by another of her associates. Uh, Fra Tommaso uh, Caffarini, who also composed the minor legend, which was translated into Italian uh, by a Stefano Macconi. Between 1411 and 1413, the depositions of their surviving witnesses of her life and work were collected at Venice to form the fa- form famous process, process that is for canonization. Catherine was canonized by Pope uh, Pius II in 1462. The emblems by which she is known in Christian art are the lily and the book, the crown of thorns, or sometimes a heart, referring to the legend of her having changed her hearts with her changed hearts with Christ. Her principal feast is on the 30th of April but it is popularly celebrated in Siena on the Sunday following. The feast of her espousals is kept on the Thursday of the carnival. So, you can see in 33 years how much she accomplished. Now, that is far beyond what the average human being could do. How did she, as a woman, get that kind of influence in that period? It's through the Holy Spirit. Because the God 
used this particular woman to work out the problems of returning the Pope from Avignon to Rome. All right. And you're right. It's very puzzling as to how somebody of that level, that class, would ever reach that level of importance. Um, but you can see the hand of God there. It's important, I think, that all of you should see the hand of God working through this particular person uh, in accomplishing something that benefited the entire church. That's the only explanation I can give you, is that the hand of God was really there. It was. That's what. Uh, in spite of, you know, her many other qualities, the thing that she is most noted for is settling the problems of the popes and returning the pope from Avignon to Rome. It, yes, Norm? So while the popes, whatever, were in Avignon, there was no pope in Rome? Yes, there was. But... Yes. Yeah, Gregory was in Rome. She talked him out of resigning or something? Yes. Yes. Actually, there was three at one time. Yeah. Yeah. Quite quite a a problem for the entire church, but yet uh, the point is made further down that the papal succession never was interrupted. That there was always a legitimate pope in place all the time. So, any questions on Catherine of Siena? Any others? Yes, Chet? Yes, it's called the, the dialogue. And it is available uh, today in book form. Yes. Yeah, the dialogue. Uh-huh. Yes, Frank? She's a patron saint of uh, medical uh, workers, uh, health care workers, and uh, she's also the co-patron saint of Italy along with St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah. Any other questions? Alright, I'm going to turn this over to Steve, and he's going to give you a uh, presentation on another very important lady who did a lot of miraculous things. Okay, Teresa of Avila. I want to start by reading just a quick paragraph from... The Way of Perfection, if you haven't read it, I really recommend it. You can pick it up almost anywhere, this beginning of any chapter, and it's very, uh, very interesting. Here's chapter one. When this convent was originally founded, I had not intended for there to be so much severity in external matters, nor that there should be no regular income. Instead, I hoped that there would be no possibility of want. I acted, in short like the weak and wretched woman I am. Although I did so with good intentions, 
and not out of consideration for my own comfort. So just keep that in mind as we we talk about this here. Um, a little historical context to put around this. Um, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Okay. Come on now. <laughs> Making sure you're awake. So 1492, Columbus sails for the New World. The 1500s, we see Pope Leo X is reigning um, from the Medici family, okay? Not some of our best uh, popes during this era. And also to pick up where Mel was speaking, the Avignon popes were from 1309 to 1376. So basically the pope is in exile. Um, then we followed with a period of uh, real confusion in the church with the anti-popes. There were up to five um, crossing over each other in time. You have to look at a chart to see. It's really confusing. Um, the last pope to be canonized was St. Celestine V in 1294, and the next one we don't see until St. Pius V in 1572. Kind of gives you a barometer for what's going on. There's a lot of a lot of problems um, from the top down. So this is a uh, and culturally we see that uh, Charles the first was the king of Spain and he becomes a holy Roman emperor. So in a sense, Spain is the real world power during this time frame. Okay, the beginning of the 16th century. Uh, the Ottoman Empire is in its infancy. And uh, it's during this time that Teresa is born. In 1515, uh, in Avila, which is near Madrid, if you if you can picture Spain, um, Madrid is pretty much right in the center, and Avila is just to the north and east of there. Uh, in 1517, the Protestant Reformation begins. Um, so we have this time of uh, problems from the top down, which leads to scandal which leads to Luther uh, going off the rails. Um, rightfully so, seeing abuses in the church and, and wanting to do something about it. So this is the time that Teresa is born and, and is raised in, in Spain. Um, in 1535, she enters the Carmel Convent at Avila. And uh, almost immediately, she becomes very severely ill. And her illness lasts about a year, and uh, her health never recovered. Uh, we see this in, in many of the saints where, where they uh, seem to carry the cross of, of severe illness. But uh, she is ill for about a year and really never recovers. Um, she entered the convent at a time when religious life was also uh, pretty scandalous. Uh, there was almost no discernment process to enter the convent. Uh, women in power, of power and prestige um, often entered the convent and left willy-nilly, I guess you could say. Um, money equaled your vocation. And um, it seems that Teresa fell right in with this, uh, with this way of life. Um, she used her, her, I'm going to put quotes around it, teaching of mental prayer to help fund the, the uh, convent of teaching the well-to-do ladies how to pray. Um, 
So uh, you can see right away that there's some problems here. And she enters right in and seems to fall right in with, with, these, with these issues. Um, not surprisingly, she struggled with prayer. Uh, so much so that for many years she, she hardly prayed at all. This is a, one of her quotes. Um, she hardly prayed at all under the guise of humility. Uh, so we can see that um, she enters, enters religious life. It's not going so well. Um, at the age of 41, her spiritual director encouraged her to recommit herself to prayer. Um, by the age of 43, so just within a short two-year period, she has also experienced some of the, the many phenomena that Mel talked about. Uh, particularly the transverberation of her heart, the piercing of her heart, as if uh, she too experienced the, the, the piercing that Christ experienced on the cross. So she, here she's developed within a two-year period after recommitting to prayer this deep union with Christ. Um, of course, at this time now, she sees the real need for reform of the Carmelite order. And... Uh, if she thought she'd had trouble up to now, this is when it really begins. Um, she's denounced by priests from the pulpit. She's criticized by sisters of her order. She's ridiculed by the townspeople, even so far as being accused of, of being possessed or being demonic. Um, some even called for the Inquisition uh, to investigate. And... Um, just a little side note on the Inquisition. It's not the Inquisition is not. Um, you hear about the Inquisition a lot. It's usually the first thing that people want to throw at you. Um, it's not a one-time event. The Inquisition was really the Holy Office, which um, we know now as the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. It's the the um, dicastery or the the office at the at, at the Vatican that's in charge of uh, making sure the doctrines are squared away, um, or that people are following the doctrine. So the Inquisition was was an office within the uh, hierarchy. Um, so the people of the town and the, the hierarchy in her area uh, six the Inquisition on her, basically. And um, <clears throat> I found that uh, in reading some of the, the biographies that she used clever devices in, in order to fool the Inquisition, basically. And um, you can see that right out of the gate in her in her book, she is calling herself a wretched woman. She's apologizing for the severity. When in fact, um, she, she fully meant for the reform to be severe, because it needed it. So here she is saying, uh, I had not intended for there to be so much severity or that there should be no regular income. It's exactly what she intended. She needed to reform the order. So that's just part of her. Uh, and you can pick out other parts if you have a sense of where she's coming from, that she uses clever uh, literary devices to to fool the, the uh, Inquisition. Uh, so finally she founds her first order, and that's in uh, 1562. She founds her first, I'm not sorry, not first order, but her first convent of the Discalced Carmelites. And it's at Avila as well. Um, 
she goes into seclusion for about five years. And during this five-year period, she uh, experiences an even deeper union with Christ and has completed uh, all of her spiritual biographies by this time. Um, the masterpiece, uh, not The Way of Perfection, but Interior Castle is written during this time. Uh, she has said that uh, St. Augustine's Confessions was, for her, uh, very moving and uh, an important part of her spiritual formation. Uh, another book recommendation if you haven't read that one. Uh, so we're at 1567. Uh, by 1576, she has founded nine additional convents. Okay. Uh, and of course, people are flocking now to her because they they sense the holiness in her is what I'm sure is what's going on here. And they want to be a part of this movement. Um, she experiences more persecution from the other Carmelite order, the, the original Carmelites, uh, forcing her in, into seclusion. And again, uh, the Inquisition starts to look into what's going on. Uh, it takes the intercession of King Philip II of Spain for the Inquisition to to finally let her do her thing. Um, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth, who is Pope at this time, then paves the way for more expansion. Uh, she founds three more convents by 1582, and by this time there's a total of 17 convents that she's founded. Uh, so you have a major movement. Uh, you're talking maybe a 20-year span, and she's founded almost one a year. Uh, not to mention uh, the the men's cloisters that have been founded uh, along the same time frame uh, with her contemporary uh, St. John of the Cross. Uh, he's also known as St. John of Avila. But her, uh, her final illness claims her life on a journey between two of her convents uh, on October 4th of 1582 is when she dies. And there's a little bit of a, a fun fact or a legend of, of that time. Uh, she either died just before midnight on October 4th or she died on the morning of October 15th, which is her feast day. So you think, that's 11, 12 days. What, can we get the record straight? Well, this is the time when the, 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 when all of Christendom switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. I thought that was a fun, I thought that's pretty cool. Um, Pope Gregory the 13th, uh, formulated the Gregorian calendar, which is the calendar we use today. So that was a fun fact. So they had to remove 12 days off the, can you imagine doing that today? That would be chaos. Um, I have, uh, there's a couple of other, how am I doing on time? Great, okay. Um, I wanted to point out that Charles I, the King of Spain, I have a little tiny note here and I missed it. He was the grandson of King Ferdinand, and that's the King Ferdinand who was the husband of Queen Isabella, who were the ones that sponsored Columbus. But anyway, that, I missed that point. Um, so here you have, in this short 20-year time frame, she founds these orders for reform. 
and uh, the Carmelite order hasn't been the same since. Uh, she uh, was canonized in 1622, so just a mere 40 years after her death. She's canonized by Gregory the 15th, and um, in 1970, Pope Paul the Sixth proclaimed her Doctor of the Church. And you might be wondering, what's the difference between the Carmelite order and the discalced Carmelite order? And it means shoeless. And you can ask Carmelites today that many of them, they do wear shoes, but for whatever reason, it was to point out the, the severe poverty that Teresa wanted to uh, found the order with, which is another little bit of her subterfuge that she fooled the Inquisition with. Uh, I had not meant that there would be no regular income, what she said for her order, uh, because of the illicit ways that income was being brought into the to the order. Um, I have a few fun quotes of hers. Um, I got a sense in studying her that uh, she had a wonderful sense of humor. Um, I don't know how else to explain it. Um, one of her quotes is, May God protect me from gloomy saints. Um, and then she has some really profound stuff. Um, she She's attributed to the poem that is used in the Liturgy of the Hours, Let nothing disturb thee. Nothing affright thee. All things are passing. God never changeth. Patient endurance attaineth to all things. And nothing is wanting. Alone God sufficeth. Using the old English there. Uh, another quote. Prayer is an act of love. Prayer is an act of love. Words are not needed. All that is needed is the will to love. The most powerful and acceptable prayer is the prayer that leads to action. The most powerful and acceptable prayer is the prayer that leads to action. She was a doer. Um, you know, she did spend that time, that quiet time, but once she determined what God had planned for her, she went out and did it. Um, here's another funny one. I'm more afraid of those who are terrified of the devil than I am of the devil himself. <laughs> I like that one too. Um, it said her motto was, Lord, either let me suffer or let me die. And, uh, you know, you read that and you think, wow, could I be like that? But I think, uh, too, thinking of her sense of humor, I think that she may have been a little melodramatic there. Um, and then, of course, her she's known as the doctor of prayer. And uh, she says here, uh, mental prayer, in my opinion, is nothing else than an intimate sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. Uh, one other fun little, little uh, legend. At the age of five, she convinced her older brother to uh, rush headlong to the moors and and beg to be beheaded so that they could be martyrs. This is at age five. Uh, her uncle stopped them on the way out of town. But uh, funny little thing there. Uh, I'd like to wrap up with uh, John chapter 14. 
Not the Mark Luke John. Just kidding. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, this is in the middle of the Last Supper with Jesus and the apostles. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God. Have faith also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you also may be. And it's said that her final words were, My Lord, it is time to move on. Well then, may your will be done. O my Lord and my spouse, the hour that I have longed for has come. It is time to meet one another. And just uh, as a a comment about Mel's suggestion of finding a saint and doing some study, I found this to be really rewarding to spend uh, really just a few hours here and there when I could, ten minutes here, half an hour there, really reading and learning about uh, this remarkable woman. Um, So if you haven't started that little project yet, I, I hope you will. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I'd like to add a, just a, a couple things. You can see what a gutsy lady she is, or was. Uh, in fact, uh, the story is told that she used to have many apparitions and conversations with Christ. And one time she said to him, Why do you make me suffer so much? And he supposedly said, because you are my friend and I love you. She says, well, with friends like you, I don't need any enemies. Uh, So that kind of shows, you know, in a way how bold she was. Uh, Steve mentioned St. John of the Cross, who was much younger, but very instrumental in working with St. Catherine in reforming the men's side of the Carmelites. And if you read his story or biography, you'll see that he suffered in many ways the same as she did. Uh, So suffering seems to go hand in hand with doing anything uh, for God particularly in a very close relationship such as these saints had and that we can have. So suffering has a place. We don't always understand what that place or purpose is. But we shouldn't always, uh, you know, try to find uh, the nearest doctor or the nearest pill or whatever it is uh, to try to get rid of our uh, suffering, our pains, or our problems, the first thing that you should do is ask God, what is the purpose of what I am suffering? Whether it be physical or mental or spiritual, 
uh, financial, whatever. There might be a specific purpose that God is permitting or allowing this to happen. And so, rather than running to the first doctor or the first medicine uh, bottle or whatever, uh, the thing that you should do is run to God and ask him for advice as to what is this all about. And that's true whenever you're faced with any uh, tragedy or suffering. What is this that you want me to gain or learn from this problem? Now, the last of the three ladies that we want to talk about is uh, St. Therese of... Excuse me. Yes, Chet? Convents. No, they were the same order. They were all of the same Carmelite order. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised that that's explained in in her biographies, how she got wealthy people to donate money uh, for them. Because after uh, the success of her original content, by the way, there was a part of the biography talks about how, and, and Steve mentioned this briefly, that many of the uh, women who entered the convents did so because of their uh, high-level financial position. They were wealthy people, and they brought servants with them into the convent. And... Uh, after a while, Catherine took a very dim view of this, even though she enjoyed it in the beginning. She found that that wasn't what was intended, uh, that poverty of mind and heart was supposed to be the main objective. And so she finally got rid of that. Uh, but the whole idea of holiness surrounded her and all of those people that uh, came to her. And that got spread over the whole of Spain. And so people would want her to come and establish a convent in their territory, and they paid for it. So that's how most of those were established. Uh, And you'll find that this is true Whenever you read the life of any, uh, even Mother Teresa recently, you know, in more modern days, holiness attracts people who then come to join. And that's true for many, many of those saints who founded uh, or established orders. Uh, Because of their own holiness, they attracted others who then joined them. Uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, very prime example. St. Francis of Assisi, same thing. St. Dominic, the same thing. Holiness attracts others. And that's how they get established. There's another uh, way we should look at this, too. 
And that is whenever there is a number of problems, as Steve mentioned, uh, between the various popes, uh, and not only there, but various problems throughout, God showers his grace on those involved and those who ask for it. So grace abounds even more so than evil. And that is actually a quote out of one of the uh, letters of St. Paul. That wherever evil abounds, grace abounds all the more. Now, St. Teresa of Lisieux, and I'm going to say Teresa, although it is pronounced Therese, the French way, Therese of Lisieux, uh, it's a little that tongue twister, okay? So I'll, I'll say Teresa, but please, it is, that is not the proper pronunciation. Okay. Uh, she lived from 1873 to 1897, just a total of 34 years. Unlike the other two nuns that we talked about tonight, this lady did virtually nothing. Okay. She didn't mingle with uh, a lot of outside dignitaries. She didn't uh, contact or um, delve into politics in any way, shape, or form. Uh, she didn't build any monasteries or convents. Uh, she had very little contact with the outside world. So, what made her so great? She fulfilled what God asked of her. And no more. No more, no less. All right? But in writing down what God asked of her, she became famous. In her book called The Story of a Soul. No, that's, that's, uh, is that right? Story of a Soul? Yeah, okay. I kind of get some of my stories mixed up a little. Thank you. All right, yeah. The Story of a Soul. And then there's this, she wrote some other uh, things too. In her writings, which weren't made public until after she died, through her writings, she brought many, many, many people to the church or returned many people who had fallen away to the church. Many people who were on the fence as to what to do, gain knowledge, uh, discernment, many graces through her writings. So it was because of the influence of her writings that she was considered a great saint and a doctor of the church. But she did very little in the ways of the world other than writing. So you see, it's interesting to look at the difference between these women and what they accomplished one way or the other. <laughs> so the point I'm making is that we don't have to go out and do great things. We don't have to uh, contact, you know, uh, presidents and popes and kings. We don't have to get involved in, in great movements. Uh, we only have to do what God wants of us. No more, no less. 
And fulfilling that is making us, or will make us, a saint. Okay? Maybe not one that the uh, world recognizes as these three ladies. Uh, maybe one that will never get on uh, the uh, canon, canon of the church and have a feast day named after us, because I already have one. I have a church not too far away called St. Mel's. It's already there for me. <laughs> but, uh, uh, see, I don't have to worry about it. It's already there. Uh, uh, all we have to do is really concern ourselves with uh, doing what God wants of us. That's what's most important. Now, St. Teresa of Lisieux, as I said, lived only 24 years. She joined the convent at a very early age. The age uh, was normally 18. She petitioned uh, the local bishop, and he refused her. She went on a pilgrimage with her family to Rome uh, for a very special uh, occasion there. I don't remember exactly what the nature of that occasion was. Uh, and she had an audience, a general audience with the Pope of a, another large group of people. And her father warned her not to say anything to the Pope. Well, that was only the, <laughs> that put thoughts into her mind and her heart. And during uh, this general audience, she had an opportunity to be very close to the Pope. And she said, Holy Father, would you please allow me to enter Carmel uh, now? And he looked at her and said, My child, whatever God wants will happen. And that's all he said to her. But she took comfort in that, and she went back home <clears throat> to Lisieux, uh, which is slightly east of Paris, and uh, again petitioned the bishop. And after some thought, he allowed her to enter. Now, it just so happens that the meeting between the Pope and St. Therese in Rome, was in the church of the Holy Cross of Jerusalem. There is a side chapel in the back of that church, or in the side of the church where uh, is housed the remains of the true cross, the crown of thorns, and some of the nails with which Christ were uh, nailed to the cross with. Also in there is the chains of St. Peter, called St. Peter in Chains, uh, when he was in prison, and a few other artifacts from uh, the ancient days of the church. Okay. It just so happens I was in that chapel uh, a couple of times, and have been there uh, two or three times uh, when I lived there in Italy. It was a very interesting place, and when I was there one time with some... Uh, visitors from the States. I took them to that particular chapel to see it, and uh, they wanted to take pictures. 
we took a lot of pictures of Rome and so forth and so on before and afterwards. It was interesting that when the pictures were developed, this was in the days before uh, instant cameras and all of that, the film, all of the pictures that we took before and after turned out beautifully. The pictures that we took inside of this chapel were all blank. It was like they were not supposed to be taken. Yeah. We're all blank. No reason for it. Um, but it's a, a very interesting situation. Anyways, um, St. Teresa of Lisieux, as I said, uh, did very little in the way of the world. Uh, she did suffer a lot. She died of pneumonia. Uh, she was also put in charge of a rather um, difficult elderly nun who somewhat abused her verbally. Uh, but she handled things in a loving way. And she made sort of a uh, an agreement with God himself, or Christ, I should say, is that everything she did would be out of love. Love conquers all. And God accepted that. And that is why she uh, said that even the smallest things would be done with the spirit of love. And that is why she is uh, recognized as the little flower. Because she said that she was never uh, a great person like many of the other saints. That she was just a little flower in the, the garden. And no one would ever uh, think too highly of her. But that was fine with her. Well, she grew up uh, and on the minds and hearts of people that the idea of the little flower outshined her real name, which was Teresa of the Child Jesus. Okay. That, and very few people are even familiar with that, but that was her true religious name, Teresa of the Child Jesus. But she's better known as the little flower. Interestingly enough, I used to live in uh, Michigan where the Shrine of the Little Flower uh, was the neighboring parish. And if uh, some of you more mature people remember Father Coughlin back in the days of uh, before the uh, Second World War and how he had sort of his own private war against going to war and against FDR, he, uh, that was his parish. Uh, the Shrine of the Little Flower. And uh, eventually, of course, even though he had this famous radio hour, uh, the bishop finally told him to uh, knock it off. And he obeyed. Yeah. That didn't keep him quiet, but he got off the radio. <laughs> uh, any questions? Right. Uh, I a question Yes, the little way. Yes, uh huh. Sort of a subtitle. Yes. Any other questions? Yes, Chet. Spiritually speaking.
Well, that was common at that particular time. All right. Um, in fact, all nuns, all nuns, even today, are considered the spouse of Christ. And if you'll notice, they'll wear a most nuns will wear a wedding ring on the right hand. Okay. Yeah. Even some priests will do the same thing. They'll wear a wedding wedding ring on the right hand. Yes. So that's not unusual. Right. And it's more common in Europe than it is here in the States. Uh, one of the things I want to point out is that during the 15th century and 16th century, 15th and 16th century, there was more problems, partly because of the plague, partly because of the Avignon uh, Pope situation, partly because of the end of the Crusades, partly because of the uh, political problems that embroiled all of Europe, but that is the time period when more saints rose from the church than in any other equal period of time. Again, very evident that when evil abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that is what it takes to make a saint. To be a doctor of the church, you must have writing. I understand the writings of Catherine and the writings of Teresa. What did Teresa of Avalon? What was her Oh, some very, very uh, significant uh, stuff. Um, the the way of perfection, the, her life, and there, there's one that's interior even castle. interior castle. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yes, very great writings. Yeah, and it was because of those again. Um, that many people came back to the church. It seems that that period of time, middle of of the uh, 15th century to the end of the 16th century, there was so much strife that yet so many saints came out of that time period for the same reason. Well, like the Avignon Popes, uh, that was something that started because of the problems of the church not having, the church being the only um, recognized authority throughout all of Europe. But it got out of hand, way out of hand. Uh, and many people in charge took it personally as if they were in charge rather than following uh, the rules that Rome had set up. Because the Inquisition was not just in Spain. It was throughout all of primarily southern Europe. Uh, but it was... Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, if you read Galileo's Daughter, uh, that's a very interesting book which brings that out a lot. Yes. 
right. Any other questions? Well, I hope you got something out of this. It's important that you kind of get the proper perspective of where these various saints are coming from and why. And that we do not have to look to them and say, well, gee, I could never get involved with some of the things that they they did. Uh, because that's not what would make you a saint. It's only when you follow what God wants of you. You had a question? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, the reference before, uh, is the one that established her karma. That's in the kind of like that. The karma has prior to that were very worldly and, uh, chased the leader in his way. And what I said in a very interesting fashion, he said, give food to a nunnery. And it just was kind of, you kind of won't be debauched. Yes, and yes. That was uh, in Hamlet towards his mother. Yes. Okay. If we have no other questions, then let us end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forward to make us saints. Not for the world to see, but in your eyes. Help us to know and understand what it is that you wish of us personally as individuals and then grant us the grace and the strength to fulfill that. Then that is when we become a saint in your eyes. That is when we can become espoused to you. When we fulfill what you ask of us. It makes no difference who we are, where we are in life, what age we are, uh, or what our circumstances are. You can use us, and we give ourselves to you for that purpose. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.